It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, good day, listeners, and welcome once again to the Two Jacks. It's episode fifty-one, recorded on this day, the eighth of, of November, twenty twenty-three. And joining me, as usual. Is Hong Kong Jack. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm excellent. There you go. How are things in Hong Kong today? Uh, well, things have gotten a little bit better. There's just a few more tourists around, though, the Koreans and the mainlanders here. So the, there's just a little bit more air of an opt- optimism around the place. A long way to go to get back to what we were, but we're heading in the right direction. Excellent work. Excellent work. Well, we're going to kick things off in Australia here. We have been following this story very closely. Of course, the Australian, where I work, um, uh, they they uh, were the very first to, to this story, in particular John Ferguson, good mate and colleague of mine, broke this particular story. And now Aaron Patterson, 49, has been charged with three counts of murder and five of attempted murder after four people fell ill during a lunch at her home in Langatha uh, in July. So she's been charged, Jack. There was a request from, from the police to uh, analyse computer equipment seized, seized from her home and in other places, as I understand it. They have dogs, Jack. They have sniffer dogs, which can pick up things like thumb drives and things like that might be buried underground. Oh, dear. I did not know that. That's a new one for me. But, uh, yes, uh, they've requested, I think, six months to analyse computer equipment found on or around Patterson's property. And the uh, the, the magistrate, and this was heard in Morwell, I believe, in court. Yeah, it was heard in Morwell. was a little bit astonished that they'd required six months, but he let that go through to the keeper. And, uh, and she has been remanded in custody there may well be a bail hearing later on, but uh, at the moment she is uh, cooling her heels in remand. You uh, would think if we think if the delay is going to be quite that long, getting a, a bail hearing up wouldn't be all that difficult. But well, given the fact that she's no showing no indication of flight, it, it might be that she she does uh, get bail at some particular point. But the chances it, it, are extremely It looks like serious. it's going to be that they're going to run a kind of a, a propensity or what we used to call a similar fact evidence approach to this um, with the, the large number of similar charges. Yes, of course, her ex-husband, uh, she's been charged with four counts of attempted murder in relation to him. And uh, one of those, I suspect, is the lunch in July where he pulled out, I think, with about 24 hours notice. And then there were other attempts. He was hospitalised on a well, one on one occasion with a very serious illness that no one could ever really put their fingers on, and made a recovery. But it's been a hell of a long time in ICU. I just want you to put your lawyer's hat on, Jack, where you just did before. But this will be a very difficult prosecution, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Any, anybody who thinks this is going to be a, a a slam dunk, you don't know enough. This is going to be tough. It's going to be tough. What I suspect has occurred, and I can tell you, I can tell our listeners that 
for the locals, for whatever reason, are remaining fairly silent. They're not speaking to media. It may well be that the police have said, look, just let us get on with our jobs and don't speak to media. It'll make things worse. I don't know about that. But, uh, but yes, I'm hearing that uh, people are reluctant to speak to the media at the moment. But I suspect that the charges followed the uh, the release of a toxicology report. Again, we haven't heard that, but I suspect that's where it's come from. And and this will be, well, it's global news, isn't it? It's news all over the world now. This is an astonishing story. I remember when it first broke, thinking this is going to be a big story, but I don't think I quite anticipated just how big it's going to be. The, the, The trial itself will be global news. It will be, yeah. It's from a, a newspaper editor's point of view. It's a great story. Oh, it, it's got a number of elements. Yes, I remember speaking with John Ferguson, very at or, at or around the time the story he broke the story, and 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 we both agreed that it was going to be a very big story. And, there, there will be people already thinking, "Am I going to get a book out of this?" Oh yeah, well yeah, it's there will be books written. They'll be given the propensity for true crime and so forth. There's going to be a hell of a lot of those people descend on Gippsland as well and follow the proceedings. I suspect the proceedings will be in Melbourne in the Supreme um, Court. Helen Garner will be looking for a seat in the um, in the gallery. Well, you know? Hel- Look, you're a podcaster yourself, Jack, but I don't know that you fully understand the extent of true crime pod- podcasting. So I'm going to suggest there'll be at least 20 podcast devoted to it at some point or another yeah uh, it's just yes it's a huge story we'll continue to keep you updated on it at this stage i, I, I don't want people to think i'm critical of helen garner her her version i spoke i'm not sure we did call it true crime reporting but her version of so. the coverage of trials and stuff has been very very good Look, this it's an industry, this true crime stuff. i sometimes a little bit reluctant to put myself in that frame, but this is an astonishing story. It will be a huge trial, and it will be... The responsibility will weigh fairly heavily or very heavily on, on, on the jurors in sifting through the evidence. And, 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 on, the, and on the prosecution, I hasten to add. Yeah. Uh, they, they've got a, a, a big responsibility to get this right. One of the, one of the best books I've, I've read on Australia is John, the, the late John Bryson's Evil Angels about the Lindy Chamberlain. Um, uh, uh, he was a, a real forerunner of that, I think, John Bryson. Lovely fella. Um, and a real forerunner of that uh, coverage. Yes, it's going to be a very interesting one. We'll keep you updated as we go. Meanwhile, Jack Qantas, uh, they had a shareholder revolt, huge votes, 83% of shareholders voting against uh, executive pay, Jack. Just another tale of woe for the national carrier. Yeah, well, it's just a continuation of the same tale of woe in a sense. Um, Look, I just think it's good to see shareholders exercising their muscle. Too often, I think, these days in the corporate world, the the executives just and the board kind of run the place without any oversight, without anybody saying, without anybody holding them to account. And it's good to see and it's healthy to see that shareholders, which include institutional shareholders, are prepared to say, no, we don't think you've got this right at all. 
Well, I just had, Jack, I don't know if you know this, but Joe Aston, who was Qantas's tormentor through yep. uh, the Australian uh, Financial Review in his rear window column, one of the sort of most read columns uh, around the country, he has uh, moved on. We're not quite sure what he's doing next in his career. But, no, he's pro- uh, probably enjoying flying Emirates first class wherever he, he wants to go. <laughs> he wouldn't be in the Qantas <laughs> lounge, would he? Uh, I don't think he's welcome there. He's been replaced by Mark DiStefano. Farno, Jack. Yeah, who I don't know. Mark, I do know. And I think he's a very good journalist. He ran afoul. He was working for the British media and got into a bit of strife when he basically, what do we say, in order to be cautious, he basically had the keys to get into a Zoom call from another news agency and sat and watched while they had their sort of online conference okay. uh, and reported on, got into a bit of strife there, got the flick from, I'm not sure who he's working with at the time, might have been BuzzFeed, and, uh, but now he's back and he'll be writing at least uh, partly that rear window column. So that'll be interesting. I don't know that he'll bring the same aplomb to it that, that Joe Joe did, but Mark acknowledged that in his tweet recently. But look, he's a good replacement, actually. And yeah, uh, well, he's a and, and, bloke who's proven us to himself. He's not above getting his hands a bit dirty for a story. Yeah, well, farewell, Joe. He certainly brought a, a very individual style to the rear window cop. Um, I remember. Not, not always appreciated widely um, uh, in the corporate world, I don't think, but it was always good fun. I remember meeting him. He wasn't uh, the columnist there at the time. He might have been, actually. But uh, he was on uh, the drum with me and uh, someone else, and, and I was there basically to promote Unholy Trinity. So that's how long ago it was. So we're probably talking 2014, 2015. And, and we said during a break, I said, look, I, I want to talk about pedophilia. And Joe said, God, Jesus, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> 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 Not his belly wick, but... Yeah. Or clerical pedophile. Oh, God, no, jeez. thought he had a yeah. brief coronary sort of occlusion there. But uh, look, uh, yeah, he'll be, he'll definitely be missed. It. It's rare to find these days a, a columnist who actually drives the sale of a newspaper, and and certainly Joe did that. As Joe did that at the AFR, we wish him well. Where to for Qantas now in terms of their reputation, Jack? Uh, look, I just it, looked it, at some figures here. I, I just want people to understand they're holding over half a billion dollars in ticket credits from COVID. Yeah, they have to solve those problems. They have to reimburse people or get them to fly somewhere else or do something. They've got to clear their decks of those present problems and then it's just a question of running the airline well. That's all maybe, they can do. Maybe hire a few more Australians and stop uh, outsourcing everything elsewhere. Yeah. It's very difficult to be an airline these days without trying to cut costs in um, the, the behind-the-scenes sort of stuff, The uh, uh, whether it's baggage handling or, uh, <coughs> or maintenance centers. of aircraft, that sort of thing. It's it's one area that Qantas and other, and other commercial aviation companies always look to get as cheap as chips as wherever they can, and that's a good thing for shareholder value, but it not, might not always be a great thing for safety. Yeah, they're not the only airline around the world that are having their problems. Cathay Pacific, our home carrier here in Hong Kong, it's not in the same kind of problems, but very similar kind of problems. Well, the chairman, it was basically just almost howled down during the shareholders' meeting. He said the company decided, well, because it, it acknowledged that it had spent 
or oh, over a million dollars in terms of in, by way of support for the yes vote in the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum, Jack. Yeah, his reputation is oh, it's quite damaged, I would say. Should think. he have gone with the CEO? And people were saying that at the time. He says no because they needed some continuity and, and I accept that he's probably right about that. But the easiest thing for him would have been to go um, and, and I think perhaps he is doing the right thing by hanging around because at, at, to his own cost because the longer he's there, the worse his reputation will suffer. Well, I just want to uh, do, just have a look at... I didn't know that he was a director of Qantas, Todd Sampson, Jack. And yeah, he, I thought you knew that. Yeah, I, the man from Gruen. Yeah, he's an odd fellow, I'd have to say. Thinks he's the smartest person in the room. I guess sometimes he might be. But, uh, yeah, he's just survived a, a push to oust him. Yeah, he's got some odd friends too, Mr Sampson. I don't know. How would you get on in a board meeting when a bloke walks in with a T-shirt with writing on it? Hmm. Anyway, it's a funny old world, Jack. Connor says a lot of work to do. Do you fly by them? I know you haven't been flying much, but I, I, I tend to choose them. That's my go. I had some fairly dismal that comes with Virgin. And uh, so I went from Qantas to Virgin and then... Virgin let me down, so I've gone back to Qantas. And to be honest, in my own personal experience, not having been a huge flyer myself, but um, through the pandemic and uh, outside of it, I haven't had too many problems with Qantas. Well, I'm the Greta Thunberg of Hong Kong. I don't fly anywhere now. Uh, but uh, when, I, when we first moved to Asia, um, we, we switched to the um, to the Asian airlines because they were better and I think they still are. I think that's, um, that's right. I think Singapore Airlines are considered probably one of the best airlines in the world um, along with... Um, along with uh, the Emirates and, and the Qatar, Qatar Airways and, and things like that, companies like that. Look, it's very good of you to sacrifice your travel in the interest of climate change, Jack. Well done, you. Oh, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm so green. Yeah. There you go. Redbridge poll out this week, Cosmaris was all over Twitter uh, explaining the great divide in Australia. Not entirely sure that I agree with him, but look, we'll just get on to the facts first. Our public, the, the, the published national poll for Redbridge has, has Labor at 53.5 to uh, two-party preferred. It went on to, with various analyses, saying Labor is behind the LNP on primary vote in the outer suburbs. Labor has increased its support amongst university graduates. The LNP now significantly in front amongst voters with year 12 or less education levels. I think these things were all understood from last from the last federal election. LNP is marginally in front among those with a TAFE qualification. Labor in front amongst those earning less than 1000 a week, they say, is mostly people on welfare. Green support amongst the 18 to 34s, the Gen Zers, Jack, now matches the LMP nationally. LMP's pathway to victory is still extremely narrow. We'll talk about that in a minute. Most of Labor's decline is occurring in the outer suburbs and within its safe seats. Uh, according to Coz, and he tweeted this up, not much fat left on some of those safe seats, especially in Melbourne. There's two ways of looking at that. And on two-party preferred, two-party preferred Labor leads the LNP across all of the above, marginally because of the Greens. These trends, if they continue, will upend how many within Labor conduct themselves. How 
people they will conduct themselves. No more safe seats will be a huge culture shock for some. Finally, the norm, this is from Redbridge, is for first-term federal governments to go backwards. Right now, that will result in minority government 18 months to go, though. So it, there's a lot going on here. And we talked about Peter Dutton and his sort of odd remark last year that the Liberal Party was the party of regional Australia. I think you probably won't want to have those words again. But it seems to me that the Liberals are strategising towards uh, winning uh, what we might call a blue-collar uh, vote or out of suburban vote um, in Melbourne and Sydney. And when I look across the, the, the number of seats that they could potentially pick up, um, I just can't see how they can win. And, and, and then when I, then, and, and, and into that analysis, you've got to roll in the fact that they've basically coughed up the, the teal seats. They, they've basically put the white flag out on those, haven't they? Um, well, they're not going to get them back, I don't think, unless someone messes up. A- a- any of those oh, teal people I actually, who do a, a I actually fair think job they were state. chances. I, I, I thought they were really good chances if they if they provided a good candidate in Kuyong. I thought they were a chance to pick back pick up Kuyong again, but not now. I, I just yeah. Well, I, I don't. I didn't think they were at any stage a good chance of getting that. This is not a, a problem or not, or not a situation that's peculiar to Australia. Um, this has happened all around the Western world, where the progressive parties, whatever they're called, the Democrats, the Labor Party, or the Labor Party in Australia, have become more and more the party of what I call the credential class, the people who've been to university, professional people, all that sort of stuff. That, that's much more a Labor grouping now or a progressive grouping now than it's ever been. And at the same time, they've had trouble holding on to what I, I still think of as the blue-collar voters. Right, um, yeah. It, it, and, probably, and, and that's what's happening in Australia. Probably and, a little bit of an anachronism these days, but yeah, yeah, but you it's, might call but it a tradie vote, something like yeah, that. But yeah. <laughs> However you describe them, we all know what we mean, I think. And the Democrats have struggled to hold on to them in the United States, and we'll be talking about that later. The the Labor Party in Britain have struggled to hold on to them, and the Labor Party in Australia has struggled to hold on to them, and it's, that's happening in Western Europe as well. Yeah, and, it is. Um, it's a, a sort of a, a social difference, if you like. We're at that sort of different, very different stages in electoral cycles compared to the British Labor Party or politics in the UK, where the Red Wall was dismantled significantly yeah. in the last election, and now it looks on the basis of by-elections and polling, it looks like that will be rebuilt. So I think these things are largely cyclical. But I think if the Liberal Party decides to put itself forward as the, it's always, well, most recently has claimed it's the party of small business and those sorts of things, I just, I struggle with the concept of them fighting elections in these outer suburban seats where they don't really have a profile, Jack. And I, I think, I think they, the while Liberal, they might be able to pick pick up a few seats here and there, I just don't think it's sustainable in, in, in the long run. Um, I think the Liberal Party's chances of success at the next federal election are very low. Yeah. Whatever they do, that's going to be the case. Their only prospect of success if the wheels fall off the Labor Party at the next election. Yeah. What they need to be doing, and what Dutton's doing a pretty fair job of doing, I think, is just plotting away and making themselves as relevant as they can where they can uh, and staying in the game. That's all they're going to do. All, they're going to, all they can do is just try and stay on their feet. 
I do note, and I perhaps I'm cynical, but I do note that Peter Dutton's gone very quiet on Gaza, and uh, and that would be, I would think, again cynically, I suppose that is because for every sort of denunciation of Hamas and more broadly Palestine in Gaza, the Palestinians in Gaza. He, he may not be finding himself winning a lot of votes in the outer suburbs, in, certainly in southwestern Sydney. Oh, no, I think it's more practical than that, even. Uh, I think this is causing division within the Labor Party, and if your opponents are having trouble, keep quiet and let them have trouble. Yeah, OK. I don't think it's trouble, though. I don't think it's trouble for people like well, Tony yes, Burke or Chris Bowen. Why would oh, it be... No, I, well, no, no, I think there's a division in the Labor Party and there will be a division in the Labor Party over this. There is in the Democrats in the United States and there is in the Labor Party in Britain. Um, and, and, and if I were Peter Dutton, I'd do exactly what he's doing, keep quiet and let the battle run. Well, he wasn't quiet initially and he was sticking his bib in a fair bit and I think he's decided to back away. It used to be, of course, that when it came to discussions on foreign affairs matters, it wasn't the subject of a lot of criticism, but of a lot of partisan politicking, but that, those days are well and truly behind us. Yeah, I, I've just noticed that he's gone a little bit quiet, and I think that's because... So I, I don't think Bowen and et al. have lots of problems in Western Sydney, because I think I don't people think that's Labor's problem. Labor's problem is the division between what they, they're going to say and what the Prime Minister wants to say. That's the problem. And that's yeah, the problem all around the Western world. Again, it's pretty consistent. Yeah, um, and, my, my and, question and, is, though, Jake, how can the liberal, how can the liberals make get any sort of benefit from that? And I just can't see how they would do that. Any person, let's say, who is has got an Arab background, supports Palestine, denounces Israel, they're not going to look to the Liberal Party for some sort of refuge, are they? Political refuge. The advantage for any Conservative Party who stays out of this battle is that you get to watch the other side fight amongst themselves and that's always a vote loser. Um, you just sit back and say nothing and you'll pick up some votes from people who don't like disunity and division. All right. Can't see it myself, but anyway, we'll move on. Uh, well, we've got a, a new program. I think it was an American president who says never get in the road of your opponents if they're having a proper a, a, a proper disagreement. I understand that, but I, I don't see voluble expressions of, of disagreement within the Labor Party, and I think the actions of Burke, etc., Burke, Bowen, Ed Husick, Ed Husick etc., are, are going through those sorts of issues and, and basically what you'll see is anyone who might be a supporter of Palestinians and denounces Israel are not going to look at the Liberal Party and go, yeah, I think that's where I'll rest my vote. But I just, I just anyway, can't see. Uh, I'll, I'll stick my neck out again. I think probably the Labor Party will squeak back at the next election um, with uh, a, a minority, a majority on its own, um, worse, slightly worse result. They have to govern with the Teals and the Liberal Party, almost no chance. Well, they didn't get 53 and a half two-party preferred last time, Jack. So mm. I'm not quite sure where, where Coz is going with his minority government stuff there. 53 and a half would, be, would increase their majority, although it depends where those votes are going, of course. So we'll see. It's a lot, we're, we're a long way away and we'll see, but there is this divide emerging in our community along demographic lines, along income lines, along asset lines, along age group lines. 
and and while Labor were the beneficiaries of that in in the last federal election, it remains to be seen where the rest of it goes, where the rest of it happens. But these are big divides. The biggest divide, of course, Jack, is homeowners and those who rent. But that's another story for another time. NCIS Sydney. Oh, you beauty. Starts on Paramount Plus. I'm not a subscriber to that. I think just one stream or too many for me. <laughs> Paramount Plus. And so we've got the, the franchise has has moved into this country. Well, do you reckon they get Roger Rogerson? He'd be fantastic on the NCIS sort of stuff, wouldn't he? Uh, he I think he's busy. The, uh, my wife and son are, 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 are sort of fans of uh, of these various franchises, the Bruckheimer lot, S and Law and Order and all that sort of stuff. I always think they're a bit odd, but they They certainly seem to work. Don't like them much. I'm not a big fan, but I am told that a lot of the prison populations enjoy the NCIS stuff because they go, oh, hang on. They learn a little bit more about forensics every time, but it does create this obsession around forensic science and crime fighting and 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 it often bemuses coppers to think that this is the way it works now that there's this sort of heavy forensic analysis but and that anyone who wants to join the police does so on the basis that they'll effectively join NCIS while we're talking about programs and I know I'm a little bit late to this listeners but I just watched the first season of The Bear on Disney Plus and as I say, very late to this, the second series is out and I've just put my viewing on a little bit of a pause there while while I basically take in what's happened in the first series. It is wonderful television and, and I can't wait for number two. If you haven't seen it, listeners, check it out, The Bear. Really just a wonderful piece of writing, casting, acting, Production, just beautiful stuff, based around based around the the ongoings in a sandwich bar in Chicago, uh, where the boy, most likely a prominent three hat chef, returns because his brother has committed suicide. The brother had owned the restaurant, and he takes it over. It's just a wonderful show, beautiful stuff. So that's highly recommended from me, but it's highly recommended from everybody. It's just a, just a wonderful show. On to now, and probably the most important matter going on around the world. Uh, Gaza, I just wrote a a column, Jack, that won't be up before the Australian, but I do want to read this, um, and it'll be news to you, and and it's rather long, but I do want to do it. And there's been a number of sort of false equivalences, moral equivalences created around Hamas and the Ukrainian Defence Forces. Um, People have tried to paint Hamas like Ukraine fighting the overwhelming forces, the David and Goliath battles. And and you can look across media. I, I picked out a piece in Al Jazeera that was doing exactly the same thing. And uh, it's, it, it's really just awful stuff. And it was picked up by a Ukrainian journalist, perhaps the most famous Ukrainian journalist since the Russian invasion, who basically denounced this sort of moral equivalence. And I just want to read this to, to listeners. It's very powerful. I, I reposted it on my Twitter, but I do want to read it. He said, Once upon a time, there was a city called Volnavaka. It's in Ukraine's Donbass, just halfway through Donetsk and Mariupol, a quiet place by the railroad of some 20, 000, 25,000 people. It's my hometown. 
And in late February 2022, the Russian military came from the north and the east. It it semi-surrounded the city and began wiping it out street by street. They needed the city captured at any price, as soon as possible for the sake of getting Mariupol isolated and besieged. For days, the people of Volnovaka were were starving and thirsting in basement shelters. They could leave them... They couldn't leave them due to never-ending, relentless shelling 24-7. Some of them decided to test their luck and leave their shelters to possibly find a way out of hell. The ruined streets of Olnavaka were littered with the bodies of those who never made it. By March 1, the city was almost completely levelled. Also, there was this, Ukraine's 53rd Mechanised Brigade. And you know what they were doing during those days? Ukrainian soldiers and officers were fighting and dying to ensure an escape corridor of what used to be his hometown so that civilians could flee into Ukrainian-controlled villages to the northwest with the help of volunteers and emergency response groups. I won't keep reading, but he he cites other examples where the Ukrainian Defence Force put their lives on the line to save civilians. This is his point. Hamas does not do this. Hamas puts its civilians, the Palestinian people in Gaza, uh, <coughs> directly in harm's way. And they do that by putting command and control structures in underneath hospitals, underneath refuges. But that's the real difference. The Ukrainians go in and fight for their civilians. Hamas considers Palestinians to be expendable. I just finish with with what he had to write, and I haven't even said who this is from. This is from Ilya Ponomarenko, who was considered by Der Spiegel to be the most important chronicler of events around the Russian invasion. He was reporting directly from the front lines in eastern Ukraine. And he finishes his tweet by saying this, so my dear bored Hamas apologists, Go rotten hell with your imbecilic takes, trying to draw delusional comparisons between your beloved death cult terror group and Ukraine. Strong words, but I actually, they particularly resonated to me. And I'm really getting annoyed with those people who are comparing the circumstances in which the Ukrainians uh, find themselves in with Hamas in Gaza. Did you see the interview with the Hamas chap on the telly where he said he was asked that instead of building 500 kilometres of tunnels and command and control centres, etc., they could have built some shelters for the citizens. And he said, well, 75% of the people in Gaza are refugees. They're not our responsibility. They're the responsibility of the UN. Uh, and we need the tunnels to for the war effort. Sort of yeah. I, I did see that, by the way. That was 7.30 report with, or well, 7.30 with and, Sarah and Ferguson. Hamas, like, Hamas, is very, Hamas tells you what they are. They're very open about it's, this. It's just that people aren't listening. Yeah. And, and Hamas they, will tell, tell you what they are. So 75% of the Gazan population are considered expendable. Yeah. So, yes, I just thought those were very powerful words from a man who's been on the front line in eastern Ukraine reporting on it for a long time. Don't compare us. Don't compare us to Hamas, please. And uh, So will there be a ceasefire? I, I can't see it at the moment. Netanyahu's been very clear about this. Without the release of the hostages, there can be no, no ceasefire. We've got a ground war underway now, and I can't see that stopping 
what's the chance of Hamas? Let's let's get back to what's real here. Why wouldn't Hamas release the hostages and thus spare more humanitarian uh, losses in Gaza? Well, well, I don't think Hamas wants a ceasefire. They don't want it. They, they, this is they're winning a propaganda war. This is what this is all about. And I, I think, would I say they're they doing it very successfully. They to, to, to regroup and rearm and, and reset up. But they don't, yeah, they, they don't want peace. No. All, all you peace activists out there, you're just like most peace activists, you're really just on the other side. Uh, look, it, 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 I, I don't want to be too critical of people who, who, who actively support a Palestinian homeland, a two-state solution. I don't want to be critical of people like that because the Palestinians have had a rough time of it. But at the same time, you've actually got to you've actually got to acknowledge that Hamas use their use Palestinians as bargaining chips. They're expendable. They can be killed, and and in the furtherance of a propaganda war, that's that they're actually winning. Yeah, the Hamas don't support a two-state solution, by the way. No, they don't. Well, they don't support a two-state solution, no. They, in fact, they want nothing to do with the two-state solution. They want a one-state solution. They want the Israeli Jews to be driven into the sea and probably the Israeli Arabs as well. Um, yeah, river to the sea. Yeah, mm. that's what they want. That's what the people around the world are chanting. Yes, I think Israel's probably losing some reputation, having some reputational damage. I don't think the people demonstrating in the streets are anything like a majority around the Western world. I think they're a noisy minority. So, but yeah, uh, and Israel has in the past and will be again prepared to take some reputational damage to do what they need to do first. First, first role of every government is defend the realm. So they'll be making sure that Israel survives this. The second thing, which they're perfectly entitled to do, is to say what happened on October the 7th was an outrage and we are perfectly within our rights to do what we can to make sure that doesn't happen again. And that's what they're doing now. And they're making a moral judgment about that. I think it's the right one, but some people will disagree. Oh, look, uh, I, I just think in terms of objectives, that, that um, wiping out Hamas might be possible, but, uh, but there's always going to be something that will fill the vacuum and then it, that it may in fact be worse or as bad as, as Hamas going forward. And that really there needs to be a negotiated, set, a negotiated settlement. There have been a number of those over the journey. Uh, both sides have breached those, breached those, those accords at various times, but that's the way forward. But really, it, where we are now is that Hamas uh, uh, led the incursion that started all of this. So they are the Russia, if you wanted to use that, if you want to use that strange moral equivalence. They are the Russia. They, they stormed into Israeli territory, massacred citizens and uh, massacred civilians and then and took away hundreds more as hostages. And they, have, and, and have, in doing so, Jack, they 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 would have they would have um, understood that an overwhelming response was coming their way, and so that's when they started this propaganda war. And they've been doing it, you know, been doing it for a long time now. It's it's, it's a very old tactic. The um, if you have a look at the people who know the situation best, that is, the other countries in the region, they 
pretty much in support of Israel getting rid of Hamas. That's what they want, because they think that's the only prospect for some kind of negotiated solution. First, get rid of Hamas. So that's the view of the Gulf Arabs. Saudis are being fairly quiet about it. Certainly the view of Egypt. The Gulf states, Jack, are actually talking about reducing their output of oil in protest. Now, we'll see how far that goes, but they're doing that in in protest to uh, Israel's uh, ground war in in Gaza. This is the chairman of the Defence Committee of the United Arab Emirates. We want everyone to acknowledge and accept that Israel is here to exist and that the roots of Jews and Christians are not in New York or Paris, but here in our region. They are part of our history and our culture. It is a direct argument against everything Hamas stands for. And that's the sort of view you find common in the Gulf Arab countries and in Egypt as well. Yes, well, there's some talk about... So I I gather the governments in the Emirates are not as one there because there is some talk, although it hasn't happened yet, that they will reduce their oil production by way of protest. So we'll see about that. And that's a very interesting, very interesting comment. That comes from, Jack, who was that? That was the the head of their Defence Forces? The chairman of the Defence Committee of the UAE. Defence Committee, okay. Interesting, okay. Keir Starmer has come out and, uh, well, look, before we get to Keir, can we uh, just briefly touch on Scott Morrison, the bizarre bizarre appearance of Scott Morrison and Boris Johnson in Israel. Firstly, let's say that I don't, I I think Scott would be, uh, would be seeking reimbursement for his costs in regard to that. So it's something that all Australian taxpayers have paid for. And if, and the question that most people would be asking is, what, what's he doing there? What are they doing there? Um, my presumption was that the Israeli government probably paid for the trip. Could be. Um, but when I looked at uh, who they were seeing, the Israeli government's probably looked through a long list of minor functionaries and decided to put them in touch with, I think, a former UN ambassador. Pretty low-level stuff, but um, and it might have been, it might have been that. My Peter Dutton went quiet because uh, any day that Scott Morrison's in the papers is a bad day for the Liberal Party, Jack. Yeah. It's a very strange thing. But Keir Starmer, and of course, this triggered my memory because Scott Morrison made it clear that he was not a supporter of calls for a ceasefire, and Labor leader in the UK, Keir Starmer, is likewise. Um, He said, a ceasefire always freezes any conflict in the state where it currently lies, and as we speak, that would leave Hamas with the infrastructure and the capability to carry out the sort of attack we saw on October 7th attacks that are still ongoing, hostages who should be released still held. Hamas would be emboldened and start preparing for future violence immediately. And as we know, the Labor Party in the UK is a little bit divided, as you suggested before, a lot of progressive parties across the world are, and there was a significant backlash because the Labor Party's had its particular problems around Jeremy Corbyn and uh, what we might call an anti-Zionist approach, Jack, if not anti-Semitic. Yeah, the leader of the Burnley Council and 10 councillors resigned. There's been councillors resigning all over, the Labor councillors resigning all over the UK, over mainly over this issue. Over Starmer's remarks. Yep. Uh, well, and, and over the attitude of the, uh, the leadership of the Labor Party not to call for a ceasefire. No. 
There is a very good piece in Politico that I'd refer you to, and that's a, a member of the British Labor Party, a woman who's Jewish and who details her blues with with Jeremy Corbyn over the journey. She said, I basically, I only really felt Jewish after taking Jeremy Corbyn on. And of course, Corbyn was expelled from the Labor Party for his inability, if not unwillingness, to... Uh, to reduce or to diminish or perhaps cut out the anti-Semitism that was rife in the Labor Party under his leadership. Yeah, he didn't, he had no desire to do so. It was part of his brand. Okay, so we've got Remembrance... And it remains part of his brand. We've got, in fact, they're just simply days away. Remembrance Day, 11th of the 11th, of course. At 11 o'clock, we will stand for a minute's... Um, and and this is more or less a, a global commemoration, particularly in the UK. And during that time, a lot of pro-Hamas rallies are planned, Jack. Yeah, well, Armistice Day, as it's called in the UK, is like their Anzac Day, really, sort of like like if you're yeah. Australian. They don't have an Anzac Day. Armistice Day is their big day to, to remember their fallen veterans. And this is going to cause a, a great deal of kerfuffle this weekend. They're very protective of things like the cenotaphs and all that sort of stuff around London and around the UK. And the protesters have been climbing up on top of those cenotaphs and painting them with pro-Palestinian slogans, etc., etc. So there will be some problems. Yeah, well, there were some... The Met is currently got a whole welter of problems under its belt at the moment. They asked a coalition of organisers of these rallies to consider postponing any demonstrations over the Armistice weekend, but the organisers declined to postpone any demonstrations. So these things go ahead, and as we've stated many times, people can get out and protest for whatever they feel like as, as long as they are... Uh, not engaging in violence, indeed violent rhetoric, they should be allowed to do so at any given time. But these things, this is really a little bit unpleasant given uh, this is a day of national mourning for uh, for the UK and, and indeed around the world for all those who perished in World War One. Yeah, it's Veterans Day in the US. Yeah, I absolutely agree. People have a right to protest. They even have a right to, to espouse stupid views yeah. um, uh, that's, and who knows they might be sometimes the people with the odd views end up being proven and right it's pos- possible that some of the things the greens protest about could be proven correct unlikely but possible that's possible but it's not really the point whether you're right or wrong is not the point no um, it should it should be allowed a process but i think the line needs to be firmly drawn at no inciting of violence no damage to property and Pretty much, you should. Other people should be allowed to get on with their business. Well, we talked about this. Of course, you're a lawyer and you love your incitements and things. They're very difficult to prosecute. And I just think that if you're going to say these things, you would prohibit, prevent violent rhetoric. That's the sort of thing that that, that yeah. when there have been pro-Palestinian rallies in Australia, and there was one in Hyde Park on the weekend, and I believe it was peaceful, and uh, and there was no violent rhetoric around. People were entitled, more than entitled, to go and engage in this way. But it's where violent rhetoric arises and where violence kicks off that you've got a problem. Uh, all right. The important thing to remember is that 
Just because you're protesting, you don't own the space. You're there making a protest, but doesn't mean you have ownership of the space in which you are protesting. Yeah, fair point. Okay. United States, Jack, over to the United States. Yes, we've all seen this. It was a Siena poll, a highly regarded poll, published in the New York Times, and it shows that Joe Biden is trailing Donald Trump in five of the six most important battleground states um, by fairly big margins, average about 4%. I think in Nevada it's 10 and uh, And this is indeed a bit of bad news for the Democrats. It's even worse when you dig down into the polling. They also polled Biden against a generic Republican, that is, any Republican, not Trump. Right. And in that situation, he's trailing by 10 plus, 10 to 15 in all those states. I just wonder about all of this and, and just how early it is. If we go back to 2016, around about this time, if we polled the Republican primary candidates, Trump had 1%. Yep. And then if we go to 20, so we're talking 2016, so 2015, I should say, Trump was at 1% in the latter part of 20. Uh, and then we get to, in with the 2020 presidential election uh, coming, and Trump led that by a, a, some considerable margin as the most likely presidential candidate to to succeed in 2020, which, of course, didn't happen. And I just wonder if a lot of this is a little bit too early. Certainly what it's telling me is that Joe Biden is not popular, is not seen to be an adequate... Well, he's not seen to be the sort of person that a lot of Americans see as their president for the next four or five years. No, it's certainly proving that... It's also showing that the support for Biden last time was a mile wide and an inch deep. It, it, it didn't go deep into the community. Some of the more extraordinary things in this polling is that Trump is getting 22% support amongst black voters, much the same amongst Hispanic voters. They are records for a Republican. No Republican candidate's ever gotten those kind of numbers before. Early days. And the other thing is that if you dig into the polling, what it's showing is that people think that they were better off when Trump was president and they think that Biden has made them worse off. And the economies, once once you lose people on the economy, that's hard to come back it from. It is, yeah. It, it is. And I just see here in the analysis that uh, Trump leads Biden in terms of economic management, 59-37. And those, those things, when we do get back to voting behaviour, uh, the economy <clears throat> is the major driver. Cost of yeah, living, you can call they it whatever sticky, you like. They are but sticky, it's essentially sticky economic, numbers economic and they're hard to change. Yeah, they um, are. Certainly one of the things that's happened is that David Axelrod, who was Obama's kind of chief man really when he was in government, um, he seems to be busy trying to push Joe out the door. It's very late to change horses. A lot will happen in the next year that no one can predict. That's certainly true. That's and Biden's team true. says his resolve to run is firm. At the, in the end, he says, only Joe Biden can make this decision. If he continues to run, he will be the nominee of the Democratic Party. What he needs to decide is whether that is wise, whether it's in his best interest or the country's. So when David Axelrod starts saying that, um, you've got some thinking to do. Well, when we talk about second agenda policies, I'm not entirely sure what Biden would be promoting, but it, 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 there were reports in the Washington Post during the week that Trump is basically, his, his policies are based on, base, on revenge 
and they interviewed a number of people, including the former Attorney General, one of his appointments, who believes that uh, that he'll come after him. Former Chief of Staff John Kelly will, will go after him. That they'll go. That Trump will go after the uh, the Biden family. It's not much of a what we might call second, although broken, term agenda. Revenge. Yeah, uh, look, I think you're probably right. Um, uh, what is apparent at the moment is, and, and it is a year out, it's almost exactly a year out as we're recording, yeah. 364 days, I think, is that people are focused on the economics and they feel like they were better off under Trump and they feel like Biden has made them worse off. And that's going to be hard to unravel. And the thing about Trump is that people know about him. They kind of knew about him in 2016. And this polling shows they don't really like Trump, what their life was like when Trump was the president. Well, that one, yeah, it's almost like a perception thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's really in the middle of a pandemic and, and life wasn't all that kind, but that, that's just the way that, that reflection can uh, be a bit deceptive. But there is, of course, real concern within the uh, within the DNC, the Democrat, Democratic Party base. 70% of its 300 employees have signed a letter to DNC leaders saying that, and I quote, we feel it is the DNC's moral obligation to urge President Biden to publicly call for a ceasefire. We're going into the issues there that are that you've referred to and what we what Biden can do as part of that sort of left progressive government and how they're struggling to deal with the sort of moral complexity of, of Israel and Gaza. Yeah. Shouldn't they be calling for judges to step aside and let Gavin Newsom have a crack? Well, there's two ways of looking at this. If you're going to do it through the primaries, probably the decision needs to be taken in the next few weeks. It so does that, need to be done soon. Yeah, so that Newsom can get on the ballot in all of those states he needs yeah. to win the primaries. The other alternative, I think, is to run this through to the Democratic uh, Convention um, and then have Joe develop a health issue, which shouldn't be too hard at his age, and to give it away and to let the convention determine that, say, a, a Newsom-Harris ticket or a Newsom-someone-else ticket would be the best chance of winning. Yeah. I think well, one, thing, uh, one thing that I would agree with in terms of the, the, the statements from... What's his name? Obama's former man. I'm just looking for his name here. David uh, Axelrod. Axelrod, yeah, I'm sorry. Axelrod, there are things that, that just completely unforeseeable. It really does promise to be the 2020 in American politics. It, it could go either way. It could end up in civil war, Jack. Yes, of course it could. Um, well, I'm not sure it'll end up in civil war, but a year is a long time in politics. There's going to be a lot of stuff. Let I'll walk you through a scenario. On, the, on Washington, D.C., four-count indictment, that's March 3. I think that's a week before Super Tuesday. And let's – oh, no, it's not. It's, it's a couple of weeks before Super Tuesday. But let's say Trump is convicted and jailed. What happens? I'm not expecting you to answer that because I don't think people know. I don't think, I, I don't think how that's going to go. Where, what the full implications of it all are. So it's just, there's just going to be, <laughs> we can't ever look to any given year ahead and say this is what's going to happen and comfortably predict it. But this seems so chaotic and unpredictable 
that uh, you just cannot say which way it's going to go. Certainly Trump has a significant pathway to do a Grover Cleveland, and that is to have a second non-consecutive term in the White House. Uh, The other thing I think we can safely take away from these polls, even though they're early, is that Joe's not a great horse to be riding. Well, it must be said, too, that when the Democrat primary was on in 2020, he was a long way back in the field there for a long time. And it was only South Carolina that, that got his got his campaign rolling. And the South Carolina primary has been brought forward. Uh, so I think uh, the way the Democrats have got their structured is is New Hampshire, Iowa, and then South Carolina. Can, uh, I just, can I just quote you this from the co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund, a bloke called Cliff Albright. Um, People fundamentally misunderstood what black voters said in 2020. The depth of support was never there. The enthusiasm was never there for Biden. We were very pragmatic. We knew he was the best chance to beat Trump, and that's why we supported him. Yeah, Um, that's right. I mean, 2020 was a profound anti-Trump election. It was a referendum on Trump, essentially. And despite what he claims, he lost it significantly. But that's not to say that people would embrace Joe Biden and would, therefore, just put him down for two terms. There was always a sense that Joe Biden's presidency was always going to be a four-year filler with with other candidates to come along. That's that's how I always saw it, given his age at the time. As I say, the safe takeaway from this is, even this far out, Joe's not a great candidate. All right. Trump indictments, Jack. You reckon there's a federal offence which would seem to apply? And that I've is... been talking to a lot of Americans here. There are a lot of Americans in Hong Kong. Um, I don't know that they're all Democrats, but you could fit the Republicans in Hong Kong into a couple of red and white Hong Kong taxis. Be squeezy, but you could fit them in there. Right, right. Um, handful, um, so, a handful, Jack. Yeah, so... Uh, the Americans I've been talking to are Republican, so Democrats or what the American pollsters would call Democrat-leaning. They all tell me that the reason why they um, don't like Trump at all is because of January 6th, and they think that what he did there was disgraceful and that he incited either a riot or insurrection. And so I had a look. I put my US lawyer's hat on temporarily. I had a look. And is there, I thought, is there a charge that they could have brought against him for doing that? And there is. It's 18 US Code 2383. Whoever incites, sets on foot, assists or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof or gives aid or comfort thereto, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 10 years or both, and shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States. And I keep wondering, why is that charge not being brought against him? Oh, I, I love your incitement charges, Jack, but they're very difficult to prosecute. You've actually got to draw a prosecutorial line between the person who is actually doing the urging or the inciting and the actions that followed. And that's a bit sketchy. What the Georgia business and what the DC four count indictments are doing is saying, here is um, a practice from President Trump that conspired to thwart the electoral college process by creating a suite of false electors and 
so on and so forth. We we might we haven't got it confirmed yet, but the his latter his last chief of staff <coughs> Meadows. It, it is likely that he has not flipped. It's not. It's a sort of crass term, but it's likely that he'll be given indemnity from prosecution and will give evidence against Trump in the DC matter. And that's chief of staff. That's ev- pretty much every conversation Donald Trump had. And and it's likely that he was... So, so Meadows was actually given indemnity in regard to evidence that he gave at the grand jury, which led to this four-counted indictment, and in conversations uh, and in interviews with with the special special counsel Jack Smith, Meadows has maintained that Trump was dishonest. Now, these are reading between the lines things that the Trump dishonestly went on went on the record as saying that he won the election and then sought this conspiracy going forward. Again, we just don't know where it's going to end. We. Don't, we don't know where to go too far down the track here. But let's say he goes down on that four-count four indictment. The first question I would ask is, where are you going to put him? Where are you going to jail, what jail are you going to put him in? There are, there's just so much that we don't know and cannot know about all this process going forward. Yep, I agree. All right, moving on. I just don't want to touch on New Zealand, Jack. They've had, they're have had settling in with their new conservative Government, there's some sort of very odd stuff going on, not so much from uh, Christopher Luxon's uh, National Party government, but some of the fringe players, Jack, are seeking to invoke a discussion on the or referendum, not a discussion, but a national discussion, followed by a referendum on the Treaty of Waikato. Waikato? I'm not even sure he's been sworn in. You know how in Australia you lose an election and normally by the Monday morning, the new Prime Ministers are there with the, the Governor-General General, 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 signing the documents, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But it works very slowly in New Zealand because of their complicated electoral system. So I think the swearing in is yet to take place. Oh, interesting, interesting, interesting. And, of course, Winston Peters was completely blown away at the last election. His New Zealand First Party uh, had, I think, around uh, a dozen or more members in the in the Beehive. They were all wiped out, but he's back again, and he's likely to be a bit of a kingmaker, isn't he? He is. Again? Um, the difficulty in New Zealand is that the incoming Prime Minister is going to need support from two different parties who can't stand each other. <laughs> Well, that's what happens. Of course, Peter's end up being uh, their foreign, being New Zealand's foreign minister. Period of time. Um, yeah, look, he's, he looks like being the kingmaker. Uh, look, I did understand that it was the Nationals, despite Labor being absolutely spanked uh, in the election, that the Nationals would not be able to form a government in their own right. But <laughs> perhaps we just ignore New Zealand, or I do, or I have, because I didn't realise they hadn't sworn in the PM yet. Oh, as far as I'm aware, you're not sure. Yeah, you're not sure, but it's not. It's, it certainly hasn't been a rapid process. Yeah, um, uh, the, the, the other party, there's the, the Winston Peters New Zealand First, and the ACT Party. Um, uh, the leaders David Seymour, um, and Peters and Seymour certainly don't see eye to eye. Don't like being in the same room, um, and disagree on almost everything. So that's going to be a tricky thing for the Prime Minister um, uh, to ne- negotiate his way through. 
All right. Well, we've got a discussion here too on um, uh, immigration, refugees and Europe, Jack, with the Green leading German Chancellor Olaf Scholz saying the German government plans to deport on a grand scale, Jack. Yes, uh, and just to, because we're, we're, we've been a bit slow getting through it, this is happening not just in Germany but in, uh, in the Nordic states as well. Yes. Uh, that the Nordic state relevant ministers have just signed an agreement to, to do this as a joint process, that is to jointly charter planes, people to deport people, all that sort of stuff. Yes. Um, the sheer number of German refugees, you and I have argued about this, but uh, on, on numerous occasions, but the Germans took on an enormous number of refugees coming from the Syrian uh, civil war. Two, two weeks ago, you were having a shot at me because I said it might be a problem. You said, no, it's great. It, it's, <laughs> thanks for paraphrasing, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> what I said was you were expecting the sky to fall in and it didn't. So that's, Speaking of paraphrasing. Yeah, but, <laughs> no, 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 my memory is very clear on this. So, But that... And that view within the Germans and within the Nordic uh, within the Nordic states, uh, uh, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland, to a lesser degree, are now saying that they, that there are some sort of issues around social cohesion. It's just political, isn't it? Isn't it really? Because they're they're seeing the rise in, in Germany, at least they're seeing the rise of uh, the ADF, which is a uh, basically a Nazi party, getting around about twenty percent of the vote. So this is a response to what is perceived to be a social sort of crisis within within those countries. It varies. It's not unif- uniform in, in, in its application across those countries. They all have problems of social cohesion, of people not integrating into the into society. Um, but in in Sweden, for instance, their problems are probably the worst because it's got a, it's a there's a crime problem attached and a violent crime problem attached with people throwing uh, hand grenades into buildings, into houses, etc., etc. And that's partly to do with the lack of integration of the migrants and partly to do with a sort of a gang warfare amongst some migrant crime families. In Germany, much more widespread problems, everything from... They've had to close... They closed swimming pools in, uh, in the summer because they were having... Uh, too many problems, too many disputes between young migrant men and the young German men over the behaviour of the young migrant men around um, uh, the girls in the swimming pool. So it's universal across there, but they're now calling just to deport people. That's pretty mainstream political view. How do you you deport people to Syria, Jack? Sorry? How do you deport people to Syria? Well, the first thing is not very many of them were from Syria during that uh, during that situation. But how do how do you deport people into war torn countries? Yeah, well, I think it is difficult. Personally, I think there's a proper way of going about this. I, I don't think you do deport people without proper processing. Mm. I think you need to put people who, if they're asylum seekers, they need to have those asylum seeker claims dealt with fairly and transparently and properly. And quickly. Um, And then if the people who miss that, then you have to find a way to send them back to to deport them. But I don't think you... I think people are proposing 
that people are deported because they have views that the majority of people don't like. And I don't think you should ever deport people for having unfashionable views. Mm. Um, the real solution to the problem they've got is to find a way to integrate um, the, the migrant populations into the wider community. And that takes work and time. But these are things that have been ignored in Europe for a long time. The, the sorts of things that Australia gets right about immigration, and particularly well, the Anglo countries, the Anglo countries get right. I'll be more specific than that. Canada, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand all get this right, and almost no one else does. The Northern Europeans have no idea. That's, that's because the what, Europeans say, "Well, welcome to our country. You go, you go and live over there, and we'll we'll check in. Well, we won't check in yeah. on you." Yeah, um, yeah. So, so, so that's why in 2005, uh, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, uh, David Cameron, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and Nicolas Sarkozy, the President of France, all said that multiculturalism was a failure. And it was a failure. They were right, because multiculturalism, as practised in Northern Europe, is a failure, because they don't understand the basic principle is that you've got to find a way to make these people German or French. Have a sense of belonging. Yes, mm. Mm. Okay, and, and, and that's worked really well in Australia. And, and the way that works, you've got to have enough confidence in your own culture to make this work. So what's happened in Australia? Greek Australians, Italian Australians, they've kept so much of their culture that they really value, but basically fit within what's now an expanded version of an Australian culture. And the same thing happens in the United States. It happens in Canada. It happens in New Zealand. The Northern European countries are going to have to learn how to do this. Uh, there's been a really interesting show on SBS, Jack, and I'm just looking for the name of it. It, it, it. it basically follows the arrival of refugees into a country town in Victoria and and how they get on and how the, this country town, so this particular country town, I'm just trying to think of it, it's where the old man used to Meribah in central Victoria. And the uh, birth, birthplace of John Nichols. I'm John sure Nichols there's a plaque there somewhere. Where the old man taught at, at, uh, at the tech school there. And uh, it's actually a rather wonderful show. It focuses on a number of families that have arrived there. And in one case, is a, a North African refugee boy who's been given a, a rent-free stay in someone's caravan in their home. And, and he opens a bowling for the local side. He bowls pretty quick too. He's taken a few wickets. But it's a lovely sort of tale about some of the difficulties that are that, that arise for people. There are some, not, not well, you wouldn't call them, they're just cultural imbalances or differences. They're not necessarily points of conflict. But overall, a fairly successful exercise. There are people from South America, there are people from North Africa, as I say, there are people from uh, the Arab world running their way and establishing their own identities and, and retaining their culture while embracing another one in central Victoria. It's a really important lesson. It's a really good show, and I wish I could find the name of it, but I'm really taken by it. Uh, and uh, it just shows that, firstly, that all those people feel that Australia is their home, that, <coughs> and they are very grateful to the uh, to, to, to Australia, to the, I guess to the Australian government, to, to, to give them this second chance at life. It's also trying to delve into just how significant it must be. Our ancestors, uh, 100 years or more ago, came to this country, and just what a significant move that is. Just <laughs> It's an enormous risk enterprise or exercise, and... Uh, and uh, 
it's only really for the bold who do it. And there are problems along the way. But overall, this is a, it's a pretty good exercise. And they, they said, we could either really succeed here or we could really bugger things up. Yeah, and not everyone's going to make it. A lot of people from all those migrant, successful migrant countries yeah. even, a lot of people go back. It's uh, called who, who Meet decide, the Neighbours, by the way. Sorry, Jack, get, keep going. <clears throat> yeah, who, who, who decide that they it doesn't suit them, so they, so they return to it from where they came. But it can be made to work. And you're right, um, they will always see themselves as Aussies. You fly into JFK Airport in, 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 in New York and you jump in your yellow taxi and your, your Bangladeshi taxi driver might have been there for six months, but he's an American. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Right? that's the difference. That's what Northern Europe um, doesn't get and what they need to get. This is doable. They've just got to approach it the right way. I do remember, and and, and forget it. Forget about the deportations and all that sort of stuff. You've got to make it work. Yeah, good show. Meet the neighbours. Check it out. Look, there are, there are some other major shifts in in people movement around the world, and and the one that's probably got very little reporting on it, Jack, because I guess we're all looking at Gaza and elsewhere. Is that Pakistan has begun deporting people all over the place uh, and directly into Afghanistan into harm's way with the Taliban there. 200 people have already returned voluntarily and there's a much bigger number that has been basically pushed across the border, excuse me. Uh, about 2 million, I think, yeah, is their intention yeah. to, to push back into Afghanistan. They'll just be basically put in buses and trucks and uh, wheeled over the border into very uncertain futures under the Taliban, Jack. Yeah. Awful story there. Uh, and, and, in Iran. and the Iranians are doing something the yeah. same from the other end of Afghanistan. They are returning people to to Afghanistan as well um, uh, in similar sort of numbers. Yes. It's, whichever way you look at it, that's not going to end well, is it? For those people, they're going to be in all sorts of strife. <clears throat> All righty, well... Ukraine, we, we're getting towards the end of the... We do um, need an update. We haven't been touching on Ukraine nearly enough. Yeah, but go on, Jack. But the question is, have they left it too late? Have they done anything with this summer? Saw some footage during the, during the week of what seemed to be a very significant raid, well, basically an artillery raid on Russian positions, but we have to say overall, there've been some possession. There's been they've repossessed Ukrainian territory in fairly small amounts, and I tend to think that sort of the idea of a quagmire, which is starting to find find some sort of acceptance throughout Europe and the United States, really just suits Putin. But I think we also have to remember. And in February, on February 22, 2022, when Russians invaded Ukraine, virtually every commentator around at the time was saying, well, this will all be over in weeks. Yeah. And it just hasn't happened. And that it hasn't happened, obviously, because of the support of NATO and the US for Ukraine. But it also comes down to the bravery of the Ukrainian people yeah. uh, and their defence force. <coughs> I, my, my view on this is very clear. We, st we stick with these people for as, long as it, for as long as it takes. And like Hamas and their incursion into Israel, these things can never be rewarded. The Russian invasion of Ukraine can never be rewarded with territory 
with they attack civilians. We saw it with their own eyes. We saw the bombing runs. We saw the missiles um, <clears throat> uh, striking on civilian pop- populations in <clears throat> Mariupol and in Kiev. Um, <clears throat> and it's never to be it's, it's never to be endorsed or supported by way of negotiated settlement. Everything has to go back to pre-February borders, and then we can have a discussion. Do you think that the support from NATO, as we've not made significant progress before the rains come this year, do you think the support from NATO and the other European countries will hold? Well, the commentary around that, Jack, is that that the focus now on Israel and Gaza is going to diminish support for the, for Ukraine. And that may well be the way it goes. Just refer to what I said before. That's the way it should be. Russia behind its February 2022 borders, and then we can negotiate a settlement, but not before that. But yes, people people's minds change. They get lazy. They get forgetful. They hope no one's looking. And, and it may well be that, that Ukraine does suffer from the change of focus to the Middle East. Yeah, there certainly is some indication that, that could be happening. Was it the um, uh, Italian Prime Minister who was who was caught on a sort of a sting phone call, saying that you know people yes. are getting a bit tired of it? Georgia Maloney, her name is. I think. Yeah, that's right. No, you, she was. She had a bit of a gotcha moment. <clears throat> what needs to happen? And people may not like it, but what needs to happen is is Ukraine have air superiority and all the support on the ground that they need, and that's how you that's how you end this. You, they have to be that the Russians have to be pushed behind their twenty twenty two borders. Yeah, but what did you? I found it. I see there is a lot of fatigue. I have to say the truth from the from all the sides. We are near the moment in which everybody understands that we need a way out. So it's going to take a bit of shoring up of, of the European support. Uh, again, no, I don't think Biden's done much wrong in, in the Ukraine, but I don't know whether he's the right, he has the energy to, 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 to bring the NATO leaders together. One thing that actually has been very positive about this is that NATO is bigger and bolder and badder than it used to be as a force. And speaking in one voice and support for Ukraine has come. Yeah, I, I think it'll be the greatest mistake NATO and the US could make if they could top off the Ukraine. Okay, now we move into sport, Jack. And of course, Indeed. the big news overnight was the magnificent innings of, of Glenn Maxwell, uh, 201 not out, I think. The first Australian to make a double century in an ODI. The first double century in a side chasing in ODI history. And he came to the crease, Jack, when Australia was seven for 90-odd. Well, he didn't come to the crease then, but Australia were seven for 94 when Cummins came to the crease and they put on, I think, 202. <laughs> and I think Cummins got about 20 of them. 12, I think. Yeah, there were a few buys because there, there was a difference about 28. So he, and he only got the 12. But he was a very calming influence on on Maxwell. Maxwell got dropped a couple of times. The blokes who put him down will be feeling sick and sorry today. And um, uh, and it was the extra- I've only seen the highlights back. I actually fell asleep when they were seven for and missed all the fun. But uh, it's, it was just an astonishing effort. And one of the great photos of this is Maxwell walking up the race, the long stair- staircase 
up the race at, at the Mumbai ground and, and the Indians just in love with him, taking photos and saluting him and all that sort of stuff. Well, I'm, well, he's I'm, half I'm, I'm happy. It's, it's the greatest ODI innings of all time. Well, he's married. He's married into the Indian. Um, yeah, he loves, he loves India. Like a lot of the Australian players do. They, they, they yeah. you know, not, they're not frightened of being in India anymore, or worry about cultural differences and carry around suitcases full of baked, baked beans with them. They, although they, they all, to a man, seem to just get on the butter chicken, and that's about it. But yeah, just a fantastic knock. It assures Australia will play in the semis now, and just extraordinary stuff. Well done, Glenn Maxwell. Yeah, I, personally, I always thought they should have stuck with him much, much longer at, cricket test, as well. at test cricket. Yeah, Look, his spin um, bowling is as good as anyone. Zampa's been part of this great trajectory into the finals. He's been very good. Um, but they decided not to go with a second spinner when Agar found himself injured and was replaced by Marnus Labuschagne. And so they decided we're going to go through part-timers. Travis Head's had a bowl. Glenn Maxwell's been very good with the ball. Saw him bowling the second last over. He wasn't happy about bowling. <laughs> he apparently had a bit of a shout at the stump mics, according to the commentators. So Glenn Maxwell bowled, I think, the second or third last over. Uh, copped a little bit of stick, but wasn't terribly pleased about having him bowl that weight. And normally you wouldn't expect him. He should be bowling middle overs and sometimes even earlier in the first 15. But hats off to that man for what was a wonderful knock. But elsewhere in the did, tournament, Did Jack, you see the timed out? Yes, I was just going to say. Now, I looked at the rule yesterday, and we're referring, referring now to Sri Lanka player, uh, Matthews. Matthews, good player too, been around for a long time. He got to the crease and then was fiddling around with the uh, strap. There was a, what we might call an equipment malfunction, and the strap on his helmet and was fiddling around with it when the uh, the Bangladesh skipper Shakib uh, <laughs> went and asked the question of the umpire. And according to the rules, and they, those rules need to be charged, um, there, there was a period of two minutes grace given, and then if there is no response, then the batsman is given out. And that's what happened with Matthews. Now, yeah. what a timed out this rule is essentially about is for someone who hasn't come to the playing surface or indeed to the crease after two minutes. And so, but the umpires have no discretion the way the rules are. I um, saw the interview with the fourth umpire um, and he said that the ICC rules of laws of cricket don't apply. It's the World Cup rules apply and they have a protocol to follow. And what happens is that the TV umpire, the fellow up in the box, who's not the fourth umpire, that's the third umpire is up yes. in the box, he sets the timer and, and if the batsman doesn't get to the crease and be ready to go before the two minutes is up, he notifies the umpires on the ground and that's when they don't have any discretion. And in their view, the two minutes was up before the equipment malfunction took place. Look, if, if Matthews had his time over again, he would have put the bat down and faced the ball and then said, look, I need to fix this up. And that could that, that the, the break thereafter could he have was, gone he on was, for 12 he, he, was facing, he was facing a fairly gentle left-arm spinner. Even with a dodgy helmet, you reckon you could cut it back. He didn't know Shaky was going to appeal. The idea behind a timed out, and there was a way of getting out, that is in the ICC rules, and I understand that we're also operating under the tournament rules as well, but that is that you don't basically make your way to, onto the field for a couple of minutes. 
it's a very odd way of getting out. And statistically, Jack, you don't obviously face a ball. It's like the old diamond duck. You haven't faced a ball and you're out. This is the first time it's ever happened in international cricket, I believe. But this is not... I've got no problem with the Bangladeshi captain. He's a very prickly and competitive little fella. But that's the way he wants to play. That's the way he wants to play. You don't complain about it. You complain about the rule. Yeah, well, look, I, I thought it was a bit rough. And if he had his time over again, he would have probably should have rethought it. Look, Matthews... Uh, well, no, I, I guarantee you he doesn't think that no, at all. I saw the interview with him. Well, he should, but he didn't but, but and wouldn't. But Matthews could have banged on 30 or 40 pretty quickly and made that game a lot closer. So it really did have an impact on the result. And, yeah, I, I thought it was a bit much, and I think most people do. It wasn't Johnny Bairstow stumping, put it that way. <laughs> sure, he should have put the bat down and faced the ball, and then he could have taken up 20 minutes getting his yeah. helmet. The Bangladeshi captain, it's in the laws. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I had to take a decision to make sure that my team wins. And whatever <laughs> I had to least, do, I have to do it. That's, at least he says, I, I wanted my team to win. Yeah. And often they, they dither around why they did it, but at least he's come out and said, yeah, I did it. <laughs> okay, I can, I can wear that, yeah. Racing, Jack, how'd you get on the Melbourne Cup yesterday? We had a little win. I stuck with Gold Trip and he got the stitch. Yeah. But And I got yeah, two out of the three in, the, in, a, in a very large effect. Uh, I didn't have the, the rank outsider who finished the... Yeah, we didn't either. We had two legs in the trifecta. And I, there were two legs. And in fact, the horses that I tipped our listeners last week, I think one was scratched. And two of those, well, one won it and one finished, I think, third. So we weren't far away, but unfortunately, TAB doesn't pay on the, I got one leg, <laughs> I got one and a half legs, you've got to get them all. So no so, so there's no, it, it's a bit like the Johnny Bairstow thing, there's no payout on the spirit of racing. <laughs> That's right. So, yes, yeah, so look, I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in Western Sydney, he said, Melbourne Cup, you almost can't tell people that you're going to a lunch to sell, to, to watch the Melbourne and cup these days, the, this sort of saying up to the cup thing has become more pervasive. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Well, as I understand the Greens' position in New South Wales, Jack, uh, they say up to the cup on the basis of uh, cruelty to animals, but they are advocating for the Brumbies in the high country to be shot from helicopters. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Yeah, uh, I think there's an underlying sentiment not just to do with cruelty to animals is that there's a good part of Australian society, and this has always been the case, who don't like to see people having fun. Yeah, true enough. Look, we'll Wowzers, about, we used to we call We will them. talk about the Brumbies next week, The uh, just because there are some particular issues around that, and people see it whenever it's announced that animals are going to be shot from helicopters, you're going to get some... Uh, some reaction from people who think that's a bit uh, over the top. But this is a significant problem in that most of these horses, they're not DNA connected to Banjo Patterson or anything like that. They, they, a lot of these are dumped horses that have been dumped in the last four or five years and they do cause, sadly, a lot of environmental harm in the Kosciuszko's and the Snowies. And, and really that uh, we've got to the point now where there are so many of them that they actually do need to be culled. Difficult one, but we'll talk about that next week, Jack. So take us out. We've had a long show and we've gone all the way around the world, so take us out with something amusing, Jack. Stephen Fry, yeah, the fellow, the, um, uh, yeah, the uh, British, British actor and writer and comedian. Yeah, I think that's um, at least uh, part of his resume. Sorry? 
I think that's at least part of his resume. Yep. He's um, also, I think he's also chairman of the ICC, Jack, the international. Uh, uh, the MCC. M- uh, MCC, that's right, yes. Yeah, yeah, he's chairman of the Marlborough Cricket Club at the moment. Mm. It tends to be a relatively shortly held position. Loves he was, he, anyway. he was asking someone else for advice when he took it on and uh, and they told him he'd whack on about 10 kilos <laughs> while he was doing it, which for Stephen Fry is a bit more. I believe there's a lot of lunching involved. Anyway, he's written, I think, two memoirs, and at least one of those, he goes into fairly great detail about a cocaine habit that he had for many years. And in his last little bit of memoir, he's decided that the reason why he had a cocaine habit was that he had a similar affection for sweets, for lollies and candy or whatever you want to call them, when he was a child. And I thought that's the best excuse for a coke habit I've ever read. I guess what he's saying, Jack, is that his impulse control was not all that strong and he found that out when he was whipping into a couple of crunchies and then when someone uh, chopped up in front of him, he said, yeah... No, I, I have no impulse control to stop this. So. Yeah, yeah you, you, Your Honour, if they hadn't have fed me so many Easter eggs, I wouldn't have been doing lies in the Groucho Club. You know? yes, it's, it's good defence, well, isn't it? Yeah. We've all had our problems. Uh, well, and we've got John Cleese gets a mention here as well, Jack. Yes, yes. The, He wasn't on the Charlie, was it? No, was I don't he? think so. He was on, 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 John Cleese has got a show on on GB News uh, oh. in the UK at the moment. John always needs the money, I think, because he gets divorced every couple of years. No, he hasn't been divorced for a long time, but his first, but his last divorce, which was, God, over 10 years ago, <laughs> I, remember him, I remember him whining on Twitter on a fairly regular basis that he did get taken to the cleaners. He lives on the island of Nevis, Jack, most of the time. And he declared the Novetians to be the um, most generous people on earth with apologies to the Canadians and Australians. Hmm. Yeah, well, he's back in London doing a show on GB News. GB News is a bit hard to describe. It's a bit like Sky, Oz, but... A little bit like that, yeah. It's an attempt by... It's not a News Corp thing, but one of the former Sky News executives is running around... Angelo, I can't think of his surname. Yes. Frangiopoulos. Yes, that's right. Angelos Frangiopoulos. Not my cup of tea when I had when I was involved at, at Sky News, but he's moved on from there. He was working in the Emirates for a while, and now he's doing GB News. So it is a bit of... Well, yeah, it's old um, man telly. Let's just get it out there. Yeah, Andrew Neil was the was a, I think both the chairman and had a program on the thing which lasted four days, five days, and he left. So yeah, so Stephen was on Cleese's program, and then he said, "When I was a teen, teenager, I had this vast empty hole in me that said, feed me. I need this sugar. I need it.'" And there's an impulse control problem there. But when it wasn't sugar, it became tobacco. So this is this is the story of my life, Jackie. So I smoked. And then in my 20s, it became cocaine. Well, uh, I, I will say nothing about that. But, yeah, still on the durries. I, I, one of his other things was toast, that he, he became an aficionado of toast. So, But he doesn't blame that. He doesn't blame his uh, compulsion to eat toast on his subsequent drug and alcohol problems, Jack. 
All right. Well, that takes us out. We've got to have a time again. How disgraceful. How disgraceful of you, Jack, to allow this to run mm. over over time. But we hope... The answer uh, to that question is very, always very disgraceful. I hope we've been able to entertain and inform our listeners as per usual. Don't forget, listeners, drop us a line if you've got any comments, criticisms, questions, etc. And you can get hold of me on at Jack the Insider. My DMs are always open. And you get hold of... Hong Kong Jack on his Substack. Who is growing old disgracefully on, on hongkongjack.substack.com. Oh, we're all doing that, Jack. You're not on your own there. And I uh, had a bit of a disgraceful episode yesterday, to be honest, but, but that's all part of the fun. And Yes, yeah, so uh, we'll leave you at, at the end of uh, episode 51 with just a reminder to tune in next week with episode 52 and we'll look at all matters around the world and all matters politics and media in Australia. And thank you for listening. We'll see you later.